If you like the Live Wild podcast and enjoy hunting-related apparel, I've got you covered. I just launched some great t-shirts, hats, and sweatshirts under my own Live Wild brand. You can find them now on my website, remywarren.com. I just want to say thanks again, everyone, for all the support, and I really hope you enjoy these designs as much as I do. Who knows? Maybe you'll head over to my website and find your next lucky hat. I'm Remy Warren, and I've lived my life in the wild. As a professional guide and hunter, I've spent thousands of days perfecting my craft. I want to give that knowledge to you. In this podcast, we relive some of my past adventures as I give you practical hunting tips to make you more successful. Whether you're just getting started or a lifelong hunter, this podcast will bring you along on the hunt and teach you how to live wild. This podcast is presented by Mountain Tough and Yeti. I partnered with Mountain Tough because a lot of the tactics and hunt styles I talk about in this podcast require you to be in the best physical shape you can. Their app is designed for hunters to get you ready for the backcountry or any hunt you have planned this fall. Yeti's been a longtime supporter of mine, and they make some of the toughest products out there that are built to last and they're built for the wild. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Live Wild Podcast Live. So I'm going to be going to the phones here pretty soon, and it looks like we've got a ton of callers in the waiting room right now. Uh, the way that this works is you're calling in. You should be able to hear what I'm talking about right now. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll pick up the phone with different people's questions, and then, um, yeah, ask, ask away. I'm really, I've, I've been really enjoying doing these live call-ins. It's a, it's a great way to get your questions answered, and, and I really enjoy talking to everyone. So we're going to go to the first caller here. It says it's Eric. Uh, feel free, uh, when you're calling in, please just give me your name, possibly where you're from, and then ask your question. All right, so we're going to go to the first call here, Eric, and see if this works. Hello, Eric. Hi, Remy. Hey, how's it going, man? Yes, sir. Good. How are you doing? Doing great. You got a hunting question? I am from Salt Lake City. Yeah, I'm from Salt Lake City. Yeah. Uh, my question is, what is the best way you've found to combat an uh, area that has a lot of swirling wind? Yeah, that's a really good question. So I'm assuming you're probably hunting, you know, areas that have a lot of swirling wind tend to be up in the mountains, right? Um, and the reason for that yeah, is... Alpine. Yeah, you know, so so the way that I think about wind is like this. Wind and water are both, like, I guess, functions of fluid dynamics. So they actually kind of move in the same way. When I'm thinking about the mountain, I kind of think about it in that, that thought of, like, what if this mountain were a stream? I don't know. Do you fly fish at all? I do a little bit, yeah. Yeah, so, you know, when you're, you're walking in a river, right, and you've got, like, a, a big rock in the middle and the water's going over it. Well, the water does a couple things over it. It, go, it goes right over the top and then it goes, it's really turbulent right after the rock and then it smooths out and kind of gets flat and then it comes around the sides and starts to swirl in there, right? So if you think about the, the primary wind direction, it's not that the wind necessarily itself is moving directions, like the, the primary wind direction might be the same, the prevailing wind might be the same, but what's happening is it's hitting this land feature and then it's making it swirl. So what I like to do is, you know, deer and elk will actually put themselves in those positions where the wind does that a lot. But sometimes you can kind of cheat that wind by understanding how it's moving around that area. There's been times where I've snuck in on a deer below a cliff and I know, okay, my wind is going over the top of this animal. It's not actually going to reach it down below, even though the wind's at my back. Um, but just kind of like looking at the mountain and thinking about how is that wind moving and swirling? And I actually plan my stalks and my approaches based on that. So 
um, you know, you're going to get those those places where that turbulent wind is up near the peaks, uh, off the drops and things like that. And the thing that I think about is like, okay, well, what's that wind actually doing? What's You can look at the clouds moving, the prevailing wind, which way is it going? And then why is it doing something different where I'm at? And when I look at where that animal is, I can kind of predict, okay, what's that that wind doing then. And so what I end up doing is I time my stocks based on when those things might change, where it might give me a slight advantage. So if you see a deer that that's, you're up in the Alpine, he goes and beds up near one of those knobs, right? Those, those classic places where deer like to bed because that wind is probably going to be in their favor most of the time. And I say, okay, well, it's swirling up there. What's something that maybe could allow me to cheat it? So I might be able to come from the downwind side in, in the center of that. And maybe it'll be smoother there when I'm not on the ridge itself, it won't be swirling as much. Or I could even think, okay, well, as the day heats up, those thermals are changing as that, that thermal gets really hot. Once that hillside starts to get really hot, it's going to push that air up into the sky. So it might give me a little bit of an advantage where I can go into an area that the wind might be swirling, but the thermals are going to take my scent. So I might sit back, hold back weight. And then once that that side where that animal is heats up, then I'm going to start moving in there and uh, hoping that, you know, my, my scent goes into the air as opposed toward the animal. Uh, so a few tricks like that, it is difficult. And to be honest, the thing that's going to bust you more times than not is going to be that swirling wind. But sometimes you just have to make those moves and use like kind of the best of your knowledge and the best of maybe what you think might happen based on uh, where that animal's at and what the day might bring, if that makes sense. Awesome. Yeah, that'll help a lot because this area that I hunt has a lot of swirling wind and it's busted me uh, like every time. So Yeah, and, um, and you'll notice yeah, it changes. It, like, it starts to move a lot different in the mornings and evenings. So sometimes it's like as, as the day starts to heat up, it gets really erratic. And then as the day starts to cool down, it gets erratic because the, those thermals are changing. But there's that time between like 11 and 3 or something. Once that the hill side, depending on the orientation of the hill, but once that hill's heated up a little bit, it might actually become more stable. So it's, it's maybe one of those things where you got to just wait for that right time when those thermals are consistent and kind of get everything yeah, okay. uh, aligned right there. Cool. Yeah, man, that is massively helpful. Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks for calling in, man. Have a good one. Good luck. All right. All right, we're going to go to our next caller here. Hello, you there? Hey, this is Igor Pisarchik from uh, Southwest Washington. Hey, right on, Igor. Thanks for calling in. You got a hunting question? Yeah, so I'm a brand new hunter. Last season was my very first season, and I was just wondering because I, I am about two hours away from uh, – or I, I have – eight game management units within two hours of me. So when selecting like a, a unit to hunt, do you take into account at all, like past hunter success from the, from the, from the previous season at all? Yeah. You know, so the way that I choose my hunt units depends on my goals for the hunt. Right. So I, I kind of think of it like this. I, I look for a lot of different things and I, I, I mean, I spend probably more time than I should when it comes to picking hunts and picking units. But I think that a lot of that success that I have in the fall comes from really planning those hunts. You know what I mean? So um, I, I look at a lot of different statistics. I, I go on the game management pages. I also use like Go Hunt um, and just like dive into all the statistics possible for, for an area. So I'll, I'll break it down to you like this. 
you got to really be honest, say like, what are you looking for? Are you looking, you're like, Hey, I'm a new hunter and I really just want to be successful. I don't care if it's a, a cow, a bull, uh, a buck, a doe, a big or small. I just want to bring home some meat, find some success, have a good opportunity. Right? So I would first start by manage, like if you got eight areas, I would say, okay, if that's your goal, then you're going to want to look for the areas that offer the most opportunity. And those might even have the most success. It's not, um, always the case, but I would go, okay, well, this unit over here, you can only shoot bulls, but this area over here, I could shoot a cow or a bull, right? So I, I would start to break it down like that. Now, if you're saying, hey, I am, uh, I'm, a, I'm a long, maybe there's guys that are longtime hunters and they go, I just really want the opportunity at a more mature animal. Um, then I would actually kind of look at the opposite. I would say, okay, where's the success lower? Because maybe fewer animals are getting taken. The densities are lower. It's harder hunting, but I might have a better chance of finding a higher age class of animal. Those are the things that I'm looking for. Uh, I like to kind of break out uh, initially, say, what, what's my goal with the hunt? And then, and then start from there. And then now another thing is like, okay, you could say, what's the hunter success here? Well, if you're just looking at the numbers, I also like to look at percentages. If I say this particular area, unit A, has uh, a thousand animals killed, just as a, an example, right? And unit B has a hundred animals killed, but uh, unit A has 10,000 hunters and unit B has a hundred, right? The, the success rate was a hunt, like everybody got one in this other unit, but the fewer were taken. Um, so I look at the percentage mm -hmm. of hunters and that success. Uh, so that, that's another thing that you want to definitely look at, not just the, the amount of animals taken. Thanks. So if I could ask you a second question, um, yeah. I'm getting into archery elk this year and I want to thank you for that. You're getting me into archery. I've been hitting hitting the mountains quite a lot. I've already put probably over a hundred miles in um, in the mountains and tracking several herds of elk um, on this private land that's attached to public land. And it's, there's no camping, so it's walk on only, which is great. But I just don't honestly know. Like I've been tracking these elk uh, and don't know how competitive is going to be on on opening day. Do you know like what I can? expect in regards to like i don't know how many like you know avid hunters are going to be out there trying to do 11 12 miles a day yeah i mean for the most part when you when you get away from the roads you're you're definitely going to start narrowing the amount of people that are going to be in those areas right um, I think one thing is you're, you're really only going to know once opening morning comes. Uh, there's been times where I've scouted out an area and then even up to the day before and said, oh, nobody knows about this spot. This is great. And then the next morning I get in there and there's 20 people around me. Um, but I think that's one of those things, you know, you can kind of gauge the amount of participation from other hunters just based on uh, proximity to a road. There's, there's always going to be more people near the roads and there's, there's people near the roads will find success too. Right. But everybody's got different hunting styles and there's probably a higher percentage of hunters that actually physically can't get away from the roads as much, or maybe just that's not how they want to hunt. So, um, the, I think that the further away you get, like the more difficult it is to get to a place, the fewer people there are going to be. And you know, th that just makes it like probably a more, uh, a better experience in many ways for your hunt. So I, I would definitely say that I wouldn't expect a lot of people, but I also wouldn't put it past people to show up where you least expect them. All right. Thanks, Remy. You're awesome. Yeah. Appreciate it. Thanks for the call. You there, Robert? Hello? Yeah. How's it going? I'm here. Man? Oh, this is awesome, man. First off, I'm a huge fan. I listen to your cutting the distance. 
on my way to hunts. Like it just gives me that extra drive and excitement when I'm on my way up there. Thank you for that. Yeah. I am from BC, uh, Canada and I sick, I hunt very thick woods and I follow logging roads. So I'm hunting logging roads and this scenario happens to me all the time. I'm walking a logging road. I'll come to a clearing that's like about 50 yards around and I'll find fresh scat, bear scat all over. And I feel like my scent is all through it already. How do you hunt those areas? Cause I've gone back and I've sat there for like six, seven hours and no bears are coming through. I like my wind isn't going into the cut, the area. And, um, how would you hunt that? area and how long would it take for a bear to come back into that area if I already walked around it? Yeah, th- that's a great question. And I've, I've actually had a lot of success in very, very similar scenarios, right? So walking the logging road, you know, maybe a little opening and this grassy patch, especially in the spring and they're hitting that, they're hitting that yeah. grass and that feed. So the first thing you have to exactly. do, um, is you got to figure out like a timeline that they're using that. So it might not even be the fact that your presence, your scent is in there. It could just be that those bears are hitting that at a time that you aren't there. It could be nighttime, right? So we got to say, are these bears hitting this particular spot in the morning? Are they hitting it in the evening? Um, I like to try to, to pinpoint exactly when they're using those spots. So um, I don't know if trail cameras are legal or if it's something you want to use or don't want to use. That's one way to do it. If it's not, uh, I mean, a lot of the places that I find you couldn't use trail cameras, right? So I developed this way of I, I would go, let's say we've got a logging road in this, this area that's however far. And there's maybe three or four or five spots kind of like this, right? Um, so I would, I would yeah. find that spot. I would look around pretty well for like what kind of bear signs there. And then I would move the bear sign, like remove it out of the meadow, do something, put a, a, a stick, of, whatever you got to do to mark the bear sign. Okay. And then you yeah. leave, you, you take like have the notes open on your phone and write, okay, bear sign this spot, um, at whatever time you see it. Right. And then leave and then mm-hmm. come back like in the daytime maybe uh you know or maybe you go okay i'm gonna maybe you've got one spot right you sit it in the morning i don't know if you don't want to sit it all day and then as i check these different spots i i keep track and then when i see sign again i go okay well it was between this time and this time so you know okay well it was fresh gotcha. you know it takes a little bit of time to do but sometimes you can figure out like okay yep. I, I did it you know, I'll try to not hit it in the in the peak times. Or if you're still hunting, you know, you can sneak into those spots in the morning, sit for a little bit, check it, go on to your next spot, do the same thing, right? So you're building these like time frames where it, the this bear was between this time and this time. Obviously, setting up a trail camera makes that a little bit easier. But sometimes those don't even. I mean, 50 yards wide, 50 yards long, like it doesn't catch all that stuff either. Um, I know guys that have done that. Yeah, trail cams are, are legal in the area. Yeah, and, and sometimes that's a good thing, but I, I don't always rely on it. Like the idea of just like, you know, building those frames of just determining, is this bear coming out at night? And so it's a kind of an unhuntable bear. Uh, then I'll kind of focus right. on other bears. The ones that are coming out at night, though, generally if you're going to catch them, it's probably going to be first thing in the evening, uh, or I mean like the very last light in the end of the day. 
Um, so I, I do that. Like I figure out when's that bear coming and then I sit those opportune times in that place. So you might have, uh, many times I've done this and I'll have one spot where I figured out, okay, the bear is kind of more in the morning, right? In the afternoon, nothing's fresh. And then the morning and sometime in the middle, mid morning, a bear is using this area. And I've got another spot where it kind of te- seems to be evening and another spot that seems to be midday and they're all within a, a small area. So I can go and and kind of hit those areas or move through those areas at those prime times, then have a few places where I'll sit in the evenings and see if they come out. And by doing that, you're kind of, you're, you're, you're kind of throwing out a wider net and you can have, you know, you find more encounters that way, um, by, you know, by doing that. And then the other option would just be, if you've got one, you're like, Hey, this is really good sign. This is probably a good boar that I want to hunt. You can really dedicate to that. And as long as you're, you're sent and other things, the wind isn't blowing into it. I think you should be fine, right. you know? I mean, there's plenty of guys that sit when we're places where it's legal to bait and they're sitting in a blind, right? And that blind's in that area <laughs> and those bears are still using that area yeah. every day. So um, I wouldn't worry so much about that. I think it's just more an issue of figuring out when the bear is in those particular spots. Perfect. That helps out a ton. Thanks for calling in, man. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Yep. Have a good day. All right, we're going to jump to our next caller here. Is this Travis? Hey, Remy, how's it going? Yeah, pretty good. How's yeah. it going, man? Oh, not too bad. Hey, got a quick question for you. Me and a buddy of mine uh, drew a very premier uh, archery elk tag. Uh, and uh, I didn't know how, if you were in that position, if you drew something really premier, you know, once in a lifetime type tag, how would your preparation for that hunt uh, differ from say, like your general OTC tag for, for elk, whether it be Colorado, Montana, would there there be any difference yeah that well first off congratulations to you both uh that's it's always awesome to draw one of those tags man you know in this planning stage it feels like you're like whoa i I just for me it's like when i draw a good tag that's like that's like winning the lottery you know the 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 possibility is kind of endless um so there's a couple things that i think of when it comes to really limited tags and the way that I start my planning. And I do do something different because um, the thing about these really premier tags is it's really hard to get, right? You can't hunt it year after year. Maybe you might hunt it once in your life. And because of that, yeah. I think that my my initial thing that I do every time I draw a really good tag like that is I try to reach out to people that have had the tag before. As somebody that has hunted limited entry units and whatever, people are more willing to share their information because they probably aren't ever going to hunt it again, right? It's not like they can go in there. It's not like there's competition with that those people that have drawn it. They might only have it once. So I, I actually start by uh, trying to figure out um, maybe some people that have hunted that area before and just kind of pick their brain. Um, I'll, I'll call, you know, I, you just kind of go online. I found people through forums, friends of friends, you know, I, I don't like asking people for hunting spots, but even just saying like, Hey, what was your experience in this area? I, I always look over the maps first, uh, really familiarize myself. And I kind of always start before I even talk to anyone, start my own like e-scouting. So I'll pull up, you know, my maps. I got my go hunt maps up on my computer and I start locating areas where I think, okay, this is preferred elk habitat right? And then when I'm talking to people that have hunted there, I have a little bit of a sense of potential areas that I'd like to look into. And maybe those people might mention something or confirm something or even say, hey, we saw all the animals in this canyon. They were low, they were high. 
Um, I think that's probably the best way to start because you're going to get, there's no information like experience and people that have experienced that unit before can definitely give you the upper hand. I would say many of the limited, I would say actually, no, I, I could probably go on a limb and say almost all the like limited tags I've drawn that I've done really well on have been just because talking to people in the area and maybe not giving me a spot, but understanding like, Hey, when I had this tag three years ago, right, it was hot. Um, this, that, and the other thing, this is kind of where we found them. This is the hunt style. We seem to be successful. This is what worked. This is what didn't. And it just gives, builds a better picture for that unit. A few of the questions that I like to ask too, is just like, you know, not necessarily spots, but what the animals were doing and what the conditions were like when they were hunting. That's something that I think people kind of overlook, right? So if you call somebody and you, you, you get to talk to somebody that had that tag before, I would say, you know, like, what was the conditions like? Was it hot? Was it cold? Were the elk bugling? Were they not? You know, if it was like really cold and they're, oh man, they were on fire, they were bugling, they were here. That's one thing, right? And if you encounter those scenarios when you're there, then you kind of match that. But if somebody's like, man, it was hot. We didn't hear a single bugle, but uh, we saw them hitting these water holes a lot. Then then you can start to build out that hunt plan based on the conditions that you don't know are going to happen, if that makes sense. Sure. Yeah, that does. Do you utilize uh, forums like Rock Slide or anything like that to find people that have uh, been in those units? Like, how would you go about finding someone that... Yeah. Yep. Uh, it's yeah. So, I mean, I've used rock slide. I've used, um, you know, I don't like I've mentioned go on a few times, but that's probably because that's what I use the most. Uh, they've got in their in the insider thing, there's like breakdowns of the units. And then if you go in there, there's like people that have hunted that unit and a lot of like discussion below it, questions and, and things like that. I've actually contacted quite a few people in the last few years just through those. Um, and, and it's seemed to, you know, like just anything like that. There's, and then sometimes random forums, some different bow forums and other things. Uh, and then even sometimes just like, I, I generally don't like to have to bother the biologists in the area, but some of those limited areas, man, if there's a, a very few tags and there's a couple biologists that, that, you know, work in those areas, sometimes they can be a good resource as well. Um, but for the most part, I like to kind of talk to hunters that have had that tag in the past. And yeah, I mean, um, like it's sometimes, you know, you just never know like what forum, when has the person that you want to talk to, but generally those, those tend to work out pretty well. Right. Well, sweet man. Thanks. Yep. Hopefully we're able to tag a bowl as big as the one you got last year. Yeah. Right on. Good luck guys. Uh, keep me posted on how you do for sure. I'll, I'll be excited to hear how it goes. Yeah, no doubt. All right. Have a good one. Good luck. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. All right. We have got, and it looks like another bear hunting call here. Let's jump in and talk to John. Is this John? Yeah. Hi, Remy. Hey, how's it going, man? I'm good. How are you? I'm uh, calling from North Dakota. And just wanted to first say I really appreciate all the stuff you're doing. I, uh, uh, My wife is a bit annoyed with all the hunting shows on the TVs, but uh, my kids like it, and I really enjoy all your stuff. So uh, thank you for that. Uh, right on. Yeah, thanks for calling. Well, what's your question? Yeah, so my question is... Um, I my first bear hunt was last year in uh, northwestern Montana. Yep, and um, it was pretty good. I, I ran into a into a, a sow with two cubs and then a, and a boar. Uh, unfortunately, couldn't connect with the boar, and then uh, went back in the fall, but went to a different spot and was really dense, and I couldn't do much glassing. So I'm going back to the first spot. It's uh, like uh, it's west of uh, Callisville. Now my big question to you was. 
do you change your attitude based on, I know you do a lot of hunting, all kinds of animals. Do you change your, I know you change your strategy, but do you change your attitude, let's say on a bear hunt? Is there something, a mindset or, you know, an attitude that you have in regards to bears that you apply when you, when you're out there? That, yeah, that's actually a great question. And I absolutely do change my mindset. Um, when it comes mm. to spring bear hunting, you know, I have to think about it in my head different than elk and mule deer because I found by just even just flipping this one little thing of a mindset, it's made me more successful. And the thing that I think about is like when I'm bear hunting, I have to say it, I'm going to be bored, right? It's just how it's going to be okay. because um, when I'm elk and deer hunting, if I'm not seeing something, I, I kind of, I start to move. I, I, I do different things when it comes to bear hunting. If I've got, if, let's say you're in that more open country and you're glassing bears are a lot lower density. First off, right. They're solitary. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're as low as half the brush that is around. And so spot and stock bear hunting, you, you know, you don't see a lot of animals, but you might be mm-hmm. in that preferred bear habitat. If I'm in an area where I've seen bears in the past where I know, Hey, it's got everything that bears need. I know there's bears here. I've seen sign or, or whatever. It's like, this is bear country. Now I just have to be patient. Mm-hmm. And, and bear hunting is essentially a very long waiting game in many ways when it comes to the spot and stock aspect. Um, you know, it, mm-hmm. it, it can be few and far between sightings. So you kind of just have to have that mindset of like, all right, I'm here. Uh, I'm going to, there's going to be those times that like nothing's happening, but it doesn't mean that I'm not going to see a bear. It doesn't mean that I'm in a bad spot. It doesn't mean that, um, you know, I'm not doing something right. It just means that there's a lot of time. Spring, spring season, there's long days, man. You, I mean, you know, it's like yeah. you're the sun's up at whatever time, like five, four, four thirty, whatever you're hiking in. It's super early. And then it's sunset by the time the sun goes down and you hike out, it's like 11 PM or whatever it is. It's a lot of hours right. in that day. And there's a lot of hours where you're like, okay, am I just wasting my time? And I, I think of it like this. I just tell myself, man, bear hunting is like some of the most boring hunting combined with the most <laughs> exciting few seconds in the realm of hunting, right? It's like pure boredom and pure okay. excitement. It's two opposite ends of the spectrum. And it's something that I battle with sometimes because I go, okay, I'm in the, a good spot. I know maybe I saw, I know there's bears here. I just got to sit, be patient and continue glassing because I know that I will eventually spot them. I just know that you got to go in with that mindset that it's a difficult task and you aren't going to see a lot of numbers, if that makes sense. Wow. Well, that's uh, thank you so much. That's a great help because I'm not a very patient person. I, I don't even like the, you know, tree, tree stand hunting here in North Dakota. I like to spot and stalk in the Sleuth even though my success rate might be a lot lower. Um, but that's definitely huge help that you tell me this because then I can already prepare myself and yeah, just uh, yeah, not get discouraged when I don't see anything. And uh, so I really appreciate that. That helps me a lot. Yeah. And you know, like, like what I do personally is I switch up my tactics. So I know like glassing can be super effective in f- big feeding areas, but sometimes I just go, mm-hmm. I, I just, you know, I, I'm maybe that's, I need to move around more, right. Just to keep my mind okay. and, and hunting style better. So I'll go those areas in the mornings or the evenings. And then maybe I'll do hunt that thicker timber, like uh, a caller, a few calls back made where it's like, okay, I'm hunting those logging roads, looking for those opens. I'm still mm-hmm. hunting and I'm looking for sign and then and playing that strategy game too. So mixing it up, is a really okay. good way to kind of 
to, to not go crazy, but also, um, you know, try different things <laughs> and maybe find bears in different places. Okay. Well, thank you. That's, yep. uh, that sounds really good. I'm excited. I'm leaving on Monday, so I hope I'll get my bear there. Awesome. So. Well, good luck yeah. and keep me posted on your success. Thank you, Remy, and thanks for all you do. Yep. Have a good day. Bye. Thank you. All right. Uh, we got another caller here. This is Quinn? Uh, Quaid. Oh, Hi. Quaid. Yeah. Nice hey, Quaid. To meet you. Nice to meet you as well. I'm a huge fan of the podcast. Oh, thank yeah. you very much. Appreciate that. So, I'm from South Bend, Indiana. I'm a youth hunter around here. I mainly hunt whitetails, but I'm trying to get into hunting with a compound bow. And I was wondering if you had any tips or tactics uh, to recommend when you're hunting out of a a tree stand at all with a compound bow? Cause I find that, uh, rather difficult. Yeah. You know, I think, uh, I don't have a, a huge, uh, line of experience with tree stand hunting, but I do have enough that I could definitely give you some of the things that I've learned. Uh, one of the, one of the first things is practicing shooting from that elevated position. The nice thing about a tree stand and bow hunting is many of the times when, you could either shoot it with a rifle or a bow, like you're, you're in the right position, you're in close country. And so it actually lends itself really well to bow hunting. Um, but one thing to think about is just being familiar shooting from that. So if there's somewhere you can practice and set up a tree stand and shoot a target, I think that that goes like just that amount of experience getting those shots from a tree stand, because you're shooting at weird angles. Things aren't, um, don't always like feel right you're aim, aiming down so your aiming point's a little bit different so just practicing 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 from the way that you're going to be hunting is huge you know you can shoot on level ground in your backyard but when it comes to hunting scenarios i like to just kind of train the way that i'm going to do and so shooting out of a tree stand is, is pretty important now when it comes to setting up one thing you want to think about is, you know, you, you don't want to be making a lot of movement. You want something that can hold your bow kind of out where you are and think about setting up your bow, depending on like, if you've got a trail or something else, I want to set my stand where if you're, if you're left-handed, right, you're going to be drawing a certain way and your right elbow is going to be go, or sorry, if you're, if you sh a right-handed shooter, right, you're pulling with your right hand, your right elbow is going to be going back. Your left hand is going to be aiming. You want to put the stand on the side that it's easiest to aim for where you think those deer are coming in at. Uh, because there's the hardest thing is when a deer is on the wrong side of the tree or you got to turn in the stand. You want as little movement as possible so you can be standing or whatever. You can grab your bow and you can draw and shoot on those preferred lanes. That's going to be probably the most important thing you can think about. Yeah, thank you. That's very helpful. Yeah. Good luck out there, man. Let me know how you do. Oh, yeah, I will. Thank Perfect. you very much. Yep. Have a good day. Bye. Okay. And, and as we're getting into springtime, I definitely think, uh, obviously bear hunting is a big hot topic. So let's go to, got another bear question here. Is this Anthony? Hi. Yes, it is. Hey. Hello, how are you, Remy? Yeah, That's good. Great. Thanks for calling in, man. Yeah, of course. Uh, so I'm from Washington up here and, uh, I, I've hunted the West, the East, the, every corner of the state. And, uh, I found a spot that was just filled with bears, but it got wiped out by fire last year. And, uh, I went back in there this year and I didn't see any sign of bears whatsoever. So I feel like I'm kind of starting from square one. And uh, a lot of the areas I like to go in are pretty thick timber. So I was wondering if you had any tips for even locating bears when sign low and, you know, steep hillsides, all the cascade terrain we got out here. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, I would, I'll say this. I wouldn't necessarily write off those burn areas. Um, you might actually find a, uh, 
now it might take a little bit depends on how it was burned right so if it if it was just like yeah. charred earth everywhere you're like okay maybe nothing but one thing about spring are you thinking about is this for spring bear hunting or fall no it's for fall the state just got rid of our yeah, spring bear hunt yeah dang it um yeah so one thing to think yeah. about you know is is finding maybe that that fringe where it's like okay there's uh, there's going to be, you know, when you think about any kind of bear hunting, spring, fall, whatever, it's all about that food source, right? So we got to ask ourselves, well, what's the food source? Um, what's the food source that these bears are going to be hitting? Uh, in the fall season, you know, obviously you've got that, that berry, berries is big. Um, rose hips can be pretty big in some areas. Um, you know, it depends even like in lower elevation stuff like pine, pine needle or sorry, not pine needles, but pine nuts. Uh, other stuff like that, right? So we got to just start thinking about what are these food sources. Now, in areas where the nice okay. thing about a burn is you've got more glass ability, right? So what I would look for in yeah. those areas where it's like, hey, we used to find bears in this particular spot or whatever, look into those areas for that like sparse, like the, the patchwork of burn where there's still cover, but those open areas might open up some new food sources. Um, one thing you might okay. actually even find uh, in the fall time is you'll start glassing some of those areas that maybe were burned before and looking for different kinds of rodents like ground squirrels and other things, things that would be hard to find like big colonies of when there was timber there, because once it's all burned, you'll start to notice it's like, Oh, Hey man, there's a bunch of ground squirrels in these areas. I've actually killed quite a few bears in the fall, just in burn areas where it's like, man, you can tell that the ground squirrels are there and there's bears and they're digging them up and, and munching on them. Um, so just oh, finding those food wow. sources uh, can be like a game changer. Oh man, that's crazy. I never would have thought of that. Yeah, that's like awesome. marmots, ground squirrels, all that stuff. And then finding those areas where it's like, it's that patchwork where they still have all that cover that they love, but they can go out and maybe hit some of these lightly burned areas or maybe it's um you know some burn and what you're going to do is you're probably going to catch them moving from that burn to those other areas and then look for those wet spots as well those places when a fire goes through it it, it imparts depending on how the fire burned sometimes it can impart a lot of nutrients and what's going to happen is you're going to get new growth in there some green up and even late in the year you can get new green up so what will happen is you'll get that like snow um and you'll get some like late october new growth and that new growth is some of the most nutrient dense food and bears know that so they're going to key in on that they're going to say just like elk and deer and other animals they're going to say okay here's some nutrient dense food and and they might be hitting that and then they've got cover nearby so look for that burned patchwork where there's other suitable livable habitat but then you know maybe even look toward those burns for food sources and and maybe focus on areas where you've seen bears in the past it might surprise you how many bears you start to turn up Wow. Okay. I'm going to go right back in there then. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right on. Cool. Man. Well, I appreciate the call. Cool. Yeah. Thanks a lot for everything you're doing, man. I'm a huge fan of your podcast. It's awesome. Yeah. Thanks. I appreciate it. All right. Have a yeah, good day. All right. Yep, too. Thanks. Bye. All right. We're going to go to the next caller here. Hey, welcome to the podcast. What's up, Remy? How you doing? Yeah, pretty good. What's your name? Julio. Oh, hey, Julio. How's it going? Pretty good, pretty good, man. Uh, just wanted to say thanks for citing my spot and scope out at uh, Salt Lake uh, Hunting Expo. I already got some good luck with that uh, scope, and I appreciate it. Yeah, heck yeah, man. That was cool. That was cool your family brought that down. I'm glad we could do that. So, yeah, that's uh, you've been out scouting and looking for sheds? Yeah, I went shed hunting and uh, literally drove out um, 
to our spot, jumped out, threw the spotter out, and like on out right away. I'm like, heck yeah, this Remy scope's gonna be working. So <laughs> right I appreciate on. it. Yeah, I love to hear that, man. So um I got a quick question. Um I wanted to see what you do um personally to help stay in physical shape for hunting season. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, I as like I used to always have this philosophy like, oh, I just kept going out and doing the things that I love to do, shed hunting, hiking, you know, guiding. I was hunting all the time. But now that I've got a family and other things, it's like it's not I can't always be out there. And so I've had to pick up a few different um, other things. Uh, so, I mean, one of the things that's been huge for me is, um, I mean, it, well, they're actually a, a sponsor of this podcast, which I'm like, some people are thinking about like, oh, well, you just say it because it's a sponsor. It's like, no, I actually just work with people because I think that it helps what we do. Um, so Mountain Tough, they've got like a program and their, their fitness programs are pretty sweet. It's on an app and it really works with, you know, it's, it's designed for hunters, which I don't think there's anything else out there like that. Um, and that was one of the reasons that I was like, okay, this makes sense because a lot of people, the tips and tactics that I'm giving can't actually physically do them. And you need that athletic component. Now, outside of that, um, I mean, I really try to put a lot of cardio work in. Um, and, and I try to like do things that I would say, like replicate what I'm doing while wearing a pack and hunting. Right. So I try to, I try to, I mean, I wear a weighted pack and hike a lot. Um, if you don't have that op option for that, like, you know, it's like, there's no mountains. I can't get out a pack and an incline treadmill. And then I try to just push my body to those, like those limits in a shorter amount of time, because think about a hunt, man, you're throwing on your pack, you're hiking in for days and days and days. And that's really hard to train for because you aren't used to that. But what I like to do is in the gym or on my off time, I like to try to hit those maxes a little bit faster. So I, I use a weight and speed to kind of fatigue myself. And then, and then in that way, I'm used to like working those muscles when they're, when they start to get tired. And by doing that, I found that I build a little bit of longevity to that endurance aspect and then adding in other things for endurance. A lot of my cardio now is like on a, on a, on a bike or a stationary bike and then a weighted pack hiking or on a treadmill and then doing all the other little things in between. So that's, that's kind of my philosophy um, and, and just trying to figure out ways to kind of really, you know, work the things that you're working when you're out in the field, your legs, your back. Um, you know, having a pack on and then just building endurance and overall strength makes a big difference. Gotcha. Gotcha. Sure, I'll have to check out that app. Um, I have been going to the gym and, and doing some of those things, but um, like you said, sometimes it's hard to replicate exactly what you do when you go out, but uh, yeah. awesome. Thank you. Yeah. If you want to check um, it out, um, if you want to check it out, let me just double check this because I've got a thing. Put my name in there. Just like put Remy in the <laughs> code thing and i think you get like a free mm -hmm. if you do that you get a free month of trial i don't think they do that with any other so i don't think they have any other free trials like that so it gives you a whole month to um or something uh i actually i'm yeah sorry i'm like stuttering because okay. i'm like i'm trying to verify that but um give that a try you should that way if you just want to test it yeah. out and see uh that one's on me for sure cool appreciate it thank you um one more quick question. I just wanted to see uh, what kind of um, what do you plan for or how do you handle um, some emergency situations? Like if you're not um, uh, having cell phone service in some of the backcountry areas, I know some people uh, use like a satellite phone type stuff. Um, 
and do you use that kind of stuff like communicate to communicate with uh, family members back home who are you know worried and concerned or whatever yeah that's a great question man i i think back to like when i first started hunting and doing all this stuff and there wasn't even an option for that right it was like you right. go out if you got hurt you had to figure out a way to get back um now there's just there's actually a lot of different options i use the um the Garmin inReach one. They've got I got like that inReach Mini, and I've been super happy with that. I think there's some other satellite communicators. Uh, Zolio's one. Um, I can't think. I'm sure there's a couple others out there. Um, there seems to be always a few new ones popping up. Uh, you know, it's. I think it's worth it to have something like that. I think that now it's kind of a probably could be like a standard part of the kit. You know, because there are a lot of places mm-hmm. that don't have cell service, and that's going to be. Um, the best way to do it. You know, you see these, these things online. It's like, Oh, how to use your phone when there's no service. Those are like, those are actually fake news, man. Like, don't do that. If you don't have service, you cannot, your phone will not act as a satellite messenger. Um, you aren't going to get a, a, a call out. If there was some kind of, you know, like a network that wasn't your network there, that would work, but otherwise it's not going to work for you. So, um, some form of satellite messenger, I think will, you know, it just kind of gives people at home peace of mind, maybe you a little bit of peace of mind. It's like, hey, if there's an emergency, I can um, I can alert someone. And to be, you know, like, thankfully, I've never had to use the emergency feature on it. But there have been times where it's, it's saved me in other ways of like, hey, I walked out to this other area and I'm like, I ended up a long ways away. And I'm like, I'm just going to drop down here, send my brother a message like, hey, dude, can you pick me up on the other side of the mountain today? And uh, makes a big makes a big difference. Okay, if you were previously on and uh, had to call back, I apologize for that. Um, I hit the wrong button and ended the entire thing. So I'm going to jump back in here. I've got uh, Chris. We're going to answer this question. Let's see here. Sorry about that, everyone. Is this Chris? Yeah, it's Chris. Hey, thanks, man. Yeah. You got a hunting question? Yeah. No, um, I was lucky enough to win a Texas archery axis hunt. Oh, very uh, cool. Coming up here in about, yeah, yeah, it was, it was actually through Bear Archery did a big giveaway the sponsor year, and I, I won that, so it's really cool. Yeah. Um, but uh, I talked to the outfitter. I mean, I've, I hunt in, like, the marshy river valley of Texas, so the Brazos River Valley area, and so it's like rubber boots to a tree stand. Yeah. <laughs> um, so this is more hill country, spot and stock. Um, there'll be some blind hunting. Uh, probably early morning blind stuff, but uh, just uh, you did a podcast like God, like a year ago or so about just practicing for archery stuff, and so I just want to kind of get some feedback. Like, feel good out to about forty, feeling okay at fifty, um, but just some things that I could go through, um, just some stuff that you would suggest for practice wise to get used to that kind of spot and stock and shooting at a little longer range than like the thirty and in that I'm used to. Yeah, definitely. No, that's a great question. And, you know, one thing about axis deer, they do live in some thicker country and, uh, and they do like to jump the string a bit. So sometimes, you know, you might actually have to try to get in closer, uh, so they don't hear that bow go off and and try to jump you. But one thing that I would definitely consider for, for practice type shots is kind of thinking about, okay, that type of terrain, it is a little bit thicker and, um, and you're probably going to be shooting like, you know, you, 
there's a lot of eyes often. So when I'm access deer hunting in that kind of country, I'm kind of thinking about the types of shots that I do. And there's, there's stuff like obstacles that you're shooting through brush and other things. And then, you know, a lot of times you got to be low. So I would definitely do a lot of practicing from like drawing from your knees, shooting from your knees, um, you know, like being low, because as you get lower on the the brush, sometimes you can get angles through and then kind of thinking about, uh, where the flight of your arrow, you're, are you using a single pin, multiple pins? What kind of sight are you using? I've got uh, like a five pin. Perfect. And so first pin is set at like 20 seconds at 30, 40, 50, 60. Yeah. Yeah. I would say the most important thing you can think about, right? And one thing that happens to a lot of people that first time spot and stock is they get in those situations. They've got a deer out there at say, um, let's say it's 45 yards. You draw back, you settle the pin, you pick the nice thing about access deer. They've got actual spots. You can pick, you pick one of those white spots. You're perfect. You release the arrow and you smack a branch halfway between you and the deer. Right. And you're like, what happened? So, um, practice that, get in some places where you can practice and draw back. So like, let's say that targets out at 40 yards, draw back and then put your 40 yard pin on it and see if those other pins, like I, I call like you can definitely thread the needle by understanding that trajectory a little bit. So are those other pins like on a branch that may be halfway between you and the deer, right? So you draw back, are the pins above your pin, right? Cause your arrow is going to be dropping. Are those pins touching uh-huh. some kind of obstruction? And if they're not, you know, okay, I can thread the needle through that hole. Sometimes you actually, uh, when you're when you're shooting in that thicker country, I might have a branch that's right in front of me, right, or maybe ten yards, twenty yards out. I'm at full draw. The deer's forty yards, and that twenty yard branch is going right through the vitals of where I want to be on that deer. But I see that my twenty yard pin clears that branch. Then I know that I can make that shot. I can thread that needle through that little hole and and get the arrow to where it's going to go. And by doing that and practicing that and understanding that. It's gonna. It's just gonna become automatic in that situation when you when you stalk in and you've got your shot, and you don't want to be that that like send that arrow into a, a stick or a branch and get it off course. So that's something I would definitely practice um, and think about is probably some of the more important stuff to kind of train with. Yeah, so just like focus primarily on arrow trajectory and shooting from you know uncomfortable positions down on the ground. Yep. Yeah, different positions and then just, you know, like, you know, figuring out kind of learning how to thread the needle a little bit and what kind of shots you can take and make. Awesome. Well, hey, man, thanks uh, for answering the question um, and really appreciate that you do this. This is like, this is just really cool to have access like this and for you to take the time. Like, that's just, that's just really cool, man. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for calling. I really appreciate you guys calling in. So thanks so much for the question and good luck. Let me know how you do on your uh, access to your hunt. There are some of the coolest animals and definitely some of the best eating. So, uh, congratulations. Uh, on yeah. I've, that. I've, uh, yeah, thank you. I've been, uh, I've been pretty stoked about this one for a while now. So I'm anxious to get out there and I'll, I'll, I'll send some pics in. Awesome. Sounds great. All right. Have a good one. You too. Thank Bye. you. All right. This next question comes from Spencer. It looks like he's got some questions on finding water in the back country. Is Spencer? Hey Remy. Yeah, this is Spencer. Um, huge fan. Thanks for, uh, picking up um so my situation is i'm actually from florida but i've been elk hunting for probably three years now yeah uh not really gotten super close we're trying to get closer further in you know camping out there but one of the issues that we run into is either carrying in enough water or finding water when we're out there so i guess my question is really kind of two parts is how far in should we be camping and should we take into consideration 
access to water before we choose a spot to camp at? That's a good question. Um, you know, it depends where you're hunting, you know, like, uh, a lot of that more mountain type country, there's a lot of water. Um, a lot of those sea, like, especially in September, um, it depends how dry the summer was and what kind of drought you're talking. If you're in more arid country, then, you know, finding water can be a more major, uh, production, I would say. Um, a few of the things that I kind of think about is, you know, water, obviously travel, like you can look on your map and say like, okay, well, here's a drainage of some kind. Um, as you get higher up the mountain, oftentimes there might be like a, a spring or a pool that settles in those like f more flat spots in the, in the Creek drainages. One thing you'll find too, is like, if I'm going into an area, probably what I'll do is I'll actually walk up what should be a water drainage of some kind. Maybe there's not water in it right there, but as you walk up, you'll find places where the water goes underground and then pops back up. And then there's a little bit of water and then it goes underground again. Um, so I, I actually try to kind of like plan my route on places where I assume there should be water. Uh, and that's not always the case. If I'm going in blind to a new, a new spot, I'll carry a lot of water. The nice thing about carrying water is it's easy to get rid of that weight. Uh, you can drink that weight. You can dump that weight out. Once you find water and you know there's water in the area, then you can kind of change the way that you do things. So many times I'll go in pretty heavy with water. And then when I get into an area, I think, okay, this is a good zone. I think, you know, maybe I've located some water sources on a map and, and I just verify that they're actually there. Then I can go, okay, I've got water. I've got a water source. I just dump out what I've got and then just use, you know, fill up and reuse use the whatever waters around. Um, but I, I always kind of like look at the map and say, okay, well, you know, what's a good route in where I can look for water. Cause I like to kind of think of that on my way in is like, where might water be? Um, but I don't always necessarily like deter my hunt thinking there won't be water there. If there should be water, then I kind of bring water and then verify it before, uh, getting rid of any. And then, you know, if you don't have enough for the entire, however far you go, you'll definitely have to kind of gauge that as you move in, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. Um, awesome. Really, really appreciate it. Yeah. And, and one thing that I suggest is like, it, it, if you leave, if you've got a water source, so you go, okay, this is a known water source. And I'm going to like, this happened to me last, I think it was last year, right? I, I hiked into this area. I had to drop down into this bowl, like maybe three, 4,000 feet. So this is a pretty good descent. And to get out, I got, had to climb back out. Um, and I found water down there, right? So I was like, okay, I've got water. And then I looked on the map, found all these springs up in this one basin. And so I was like, I was thinking to myself, oh, okay, this is great. There's water. So I, I had my one bottle and I didn't fill my extra bladder and I get up there and all those springs were dry. There was no water in them. And, uh, I was severely dehydrated and thought this was stupid. And I had actually had to drop back down a really long ways to get water again. So if you're going, as you go into new country uh, without water, like you're going, Hey, I'm going to travel a long distance, three, four miles to this spot bring enough water to make sure you got enough to get there and get back to that other water source just in case it doesn't pan out. Um, it's just something to kind of keep in mind. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Are you usually setting camp around that three, four mile mark then? Um, oh man, it just depends. Uh, you know, it just depends on the area, the hunting pressure and where I'm finding things. My hunt, my backcountry hunt style is more, um, I would say like bivouac style where I kind of continually move camp until I find maybe there's an area that I want to hunt or whatever. So I like to just stay kind of light mobile, but that's just my preferred method. So I'll keep everything kind of on my back, pack up camp every day and then just keep moving. So sometimes, I mean, over the course of a week, I might go really far, uh, but sometimes I might just go, Hey, there's a nice spot to camp. There's animals around here. I can spike out from there, go a few miles in, make camp, got nice water, got a, you can carry more, 
that way and then hike each day a little bit further and then just kind of day hunt from there. So it, it really just depends on the hunt. Um, I would say I, I've never had two hunts that go similar or the same. Okay. If that makes awesome. sense. Yeah, I really appreciate it. This is the little details that people out east struggle with. Yeah, so I, yeah. Uh, I would say for your for your first trip though, um, find a spot where you think you can get water. Pick a nice camp spot, carry your camp in, set a camp up, and then hunt from that camp. It makes it a lot easier. It's a lot less logistics and things you need to know, and, and then that allows you to explore a little bit too. And you might find, hey, there's elk or whatever you're hunting. Maybe there's this other spot and there's water back there, and we can and then just move camp. You know um that's that's a really good way to kind of think about it and go about it in, in that scenario yeah we'll definitely plan to do that i really really appreciate it yep have a good one thanks all right we are going to take a couple more calls here uh, let's see is this robin uh Travis? Travis, okay. Yeah, the, the auto screener yep. <laughs> says it's Robin, but how's it going, yeah, Travis? Yeah, I, I was wondering how that worked. <laughs> yeah. Hey, so I had a question um, about uh, what do you do to prevent rodents from getting into your food and your gear? Um, yeah, I mean, where we hunt in uh, in Colorado, we have such trouble with mice, and they, I mean, we've had packs chewed through, and yeah, I don't know. Like at nighttime, do you put your pack, do you hang your pack up so nothing chews through it? Or, yeah, what do you do? Yeah, that, um, that's a really good uh, a really good question. Yeah, I definitely do that. Um, so it, there's a few areas that I've hunted, and it seems like whatever they are, ground squirrels, marmots, whatever, mm-hmm. something's getting into them, right? Tearing it up, trying to yeah. get to your food. So mostly they're they're going after food, you know, it's not like they don't just chew through your pack just to chew through your pack. Um, so what I do, I keep my food in a dry bag, um, like a waterproof roll sack. I think I've got like a sea to summit one. They actually make, I just saw this the other day for when I was doing a little bit extra research for that bear episode last week. Um, there's like some mm-hmm. bear bags that are supposedly tear proof, rip proof. I, I actually don't own one. I've never held one in my hand, but I'm going to look into them cause it might be the same similar weight as that dry bag and add a little bit more protection for the most part. Anything I would do for bears is actually in reality, pretty much mostly just keep rodents out of my stuff. Um, so I'll just have a dry bag, okay. roll top, roll it up, throw it. If I can hang it, I can hang it. Um, but for the most part, I haven't had anything chew through my little bit thicker dry bags, um, not that it can't happen, okay. but, uh, I try to hang them out of reach a little bit because most of the stuff that gets into it, I found is, is like you say, some kind of mouse rodent ground dwelling. Um, so just by putting it in a tree, yeah. they tend to not get into it as much. And if you don't have that, like a stuff sack and just try to hang it a little bit off the ground tends to work pretty well. Okay. And do you hang your, uh, your, like when you're in your tent at night, do you put your pack in the air as well? Um, no, it's, or is, is that in the tent with you? Yeah. I mean, it just depends what I'm doing. Like if I don't have food in it, I, I haven't really had any problems with that. Um, you know, sometimes okay. like, and if I'm not in bear country or whatever, sometimes I'll just have my pack in my tent or in my vestibule, you know, that way you can, if you hear okay. something and then just kind of keep that food separated. If I'm in country where I'm worried about bears, um, then I'll just move that food away uh, from, from where I'm at. But I have, like I, like you say, I even have had things chewed up in my vestibule of my tent, um, probably from mice. So, uh, I would say like just yeah. kind of hanging that food. Cause that's really what they're after. So kind of getting that food away from, yeah, them, yeah. um, makes it a little bit more secure. Hmm. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. I'll keep that in mind. Yeah. Thanks for the call. Appreciate it. 
Yeah. Thanks. All right. We will take a couple more questions here. Welcome to the podcast. You got a question? Yeah. Hey, this is Sean. Hey, Sean. How's it going? Good, man. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. Um, I love your stuff. Uh, I've learned a ton over the last few years, man. It's, it's great. I appreciate it. You're actually part of the reason I ventured out and started doing a lot more um, hunting out west. Um, my question regards early season antlerless archery elk hunting in northern Utah. I drew a tag last year in the North Slope Bonsai Vernal area with the Ashley National Forest. I was probably five miles from the closest road, middle of nowhere, did a ton of e-scouting because I'm from Missouri, so I can't actually get out there to scout very easily, obviously. Yeah. Um, when I get out there, there was, like, domesticated cows, just feral walking around with ear tags everywhere I went. Um, there was tons of, tons of elk sign everywhere. There was water everywhere. But every time I would try to try to make any type of elk call whatsoever i would get a call back from a cow every time i thought i heard something that could be an elk turned out to be a cow um do you have any suggestions on on or have you ever ran into that problem where there's other big animals that would prevent you from from being able to find what you're looking for yeah, definitely. Um, you know, you do run into that a lot. Like a lot of the places that you might hunt might also be cattle country. Uh, and, and, you know, there's a few, there's a few things that are positives and few things that are negatives. Like you say, you know, if the cows are in there and it, and it's potentially, um, making it difficult to sometimes like uh, there's additional eyes for stocks, there's other things, but yeah, if there's cattle, there's water, right? And so there is some things that, you know, maybe wouldn't even be in that area, uh, maybe some kind of tap spring, some kind of water trough, something like that. Now, what I I would suggest is if there's an area that's really being overrun with cattle, then I, then I just start to adjust and find a new spot. Um, it's not that there won't be elk in those places, but it could make it more difficult or maybe those, those animals, the, the cattle might be moved around. Uh, you know, it's probably an early season hunt. So they're still on that summer range, um, you know, summer grazing areas. So, you know, you might have to kind of pick some different spots that the cows don't, that the cattle won't really gravitate to, but the elk will. Um, a lot of the places you hunt out West might have cattle in it, but you can kind of do workarounds. You can find maybe some springs that aren't being used by the cattle areas that, you know, they, they are a lot of places, but they also aren't everywhere. There's places that the cattle don't like. Um, so kind of finding those spots and then kind of adjusting your hunt plan accordingly. And sometimes you don't know where those cows are going to be or the cattle are going to be at a particular time. So you could go back to that same exact spot next year and it'd be completely void of cattle, or you could go there and that's just where they always are every year in that particular area. So, you know, just adjusting accordingly would be my suggestion. Okay. Yeah. It seems like it's a, a not a very popular tag. I would say it is an early season hunt. It is, it is up in the, up in the mountains, middle of, middle of nowhere in Northern Utah. Um, so there's not a whole lot of like, field grazing areas but there is some like lakes and that kind of stuff with open opener areas around them um but it is a lot of up and down mountainous kind of kind of terrain um but like i said there there is water everywhere um there's food everywhere do you have any suggestions on like what to kind of look for as far as possible areas that you think that maybe they would more gravitate to yeah, I mean, you know, you can you can look in those those areas that maybe it's like, well, what's maybe missing in that area? If there's cover everywhere, food everywhere, 
open areas everywhere. If it's open enough, you know, get a ways away from where you want to look and just cover a lot of that country with your binoculars, with your optics, with your, with your glass. You know, you might have to cut, like, I would say be mobile enough where you can cover a lot of country. Like, I think it sounds like an area where the best opportunities are going to be by just covering a lot of country. So that means covering it with your eyes, let your eyes do a lot of walking, covering as much country as possible, finding really good vantages and finding multiple vantages. So finding as many places where you can glass as far as possible and then just hitting all those places in the opportune times early morning in the evening and afternoon. And then when it comes to daytime, maybe finding those really shady uh, south face or sorry, north facing slopes where there's cover and their animals are going to be used as bedding and, and kind of maybe focusing on those in the middle of the day. Awesome. I do appreciate it. I'm definitely going to, going to try for that tag again this year and see if I can't go out and go out and fill it this time. Perfect. Good luck. Let me know how you do. All right. Thanks a lot. Yep. All right. We're going to jump in here. This will be our last caller. Let's see Chris. This is Chris. Hey, Remy. How you doing, man? Yeah, pretty good. How are you? Uh, doing well. Thanks for taking my call. Big fan. Uh, appreciate everything uh, you do on the podcast. It's, uh, it's great. I had a quick question about uh, uh, rifle scopes. So I grew up uh, just shotgun, uh, iron sight, and uh, I have an old Bushnell scope uh, that my dad got me a long time ago, um, shotgun hunting, whitetail in southern Illinois. And I'm in Georgia now and bought a Weatherby 308 and need to put a scope on it. And I'm just wondering what kind of things I should be looking for um, as far as choosing a scope and, and what might be the right kind of scope for a white tail and that kind of weapon and, and so on and so forth. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess, you know, it's just like anything, you kind of got to say, well, what do I want to do with this, with this rifle? Right. If you're like, Hey, I want to take it out West and I want to do a little bit more long range and I want to, uh, a lot of precision, then that's going to be one kind of scope. If you say, Hey, it's going to be for white tail. My average shot's going to be under 200 yards, then that's going to be like a completely different kind of scope. Um, so, you know, okay. I, I would start with that and say, what, like, what, really do you want to do with the rifle and what's going to be like the thing that you use it most for okay yeah because it'll probably be like mostly yeah like you said sub 200 yard shots so i mean i as far as like the power is concerned and all that is it's just the lower lower power i guess would be for something like that yeah you know i i like i mean i would say for something like that you probably want to the most basic scope would be your a really good option would be like a three to nine right it's variable so you can zoom okay. in you can zoom out um, and, and that way, if yeah. you go somewhere too, where you, you might need a little bit more scope power, uh, that's probably the best. I would not suggest something with adjustable or exposed turrets. I'd have everything capped. Right. Um, and then okay. you might want to look for a reticle that has some kind of drop compensation in it. So, uh, what that would be is like, it's got ballistic lines in there. Um, you know, every, every mm -hmm. manufacturer has a different version of it. They call it something else. So if you decide like, Hey, I, I'm going to go on an elk hunt now and I don't want to have to get a new scope or a new gun, but I might be shooting 300 yards. Then you've got that in your right. crosshair. So it's kind of like, it's, it's a scope that's primarily for what you do now, but also has options mm -hmm. for something later on where you might want to shoot a little bit further, but it gives you like your holdover inside the scope. Um, it'll have like, uh, maybe okay, a, a yeah. main crosshair and then one or two lines below it. And then you can figure out with that bullet, what, what that drop compensation is for under 200 yards. It's not even really going to make a difference, but for, for yeah. like, you know, the potential to use it in different ways, I would say, I would suggest that yeah. type of rifle scope. 
Um, otherwise, just okay, a single a single plex, you know, three to nine. Um, there's a lot of different ones out there, and you know, it, it, I think that you'll there's plenty of options, but probably something in that range would be what you're looking for. Sounds great, Remy. I really appreciate the uh, the call. Yep. Thank you very much. All right. All right. I will do one more here. This is our last call for our call-in Q&A. How's it going? This is Remy. Hey. Hey, Remy. Thanks a lot for all you do. I appreciate you giving the time to ask questions like this. You're awesome. Yeah. I'm glad you called in. Thanks. What's your name? John. I, uh, I hunt out in Utah, but I have a question about range-finding binoculars. I noticed that you don't use them as far as I can tell, but it seems like they might be more convenient to be able to spot something and range it right away. But I was wondering what your opinion on them was. Yeah. So I, I actually really do like range finding binoculars. Um, I, I've used a lot of different kinds over the years. Um, they, and they've definitely advanced. So there's some pretty cool features, especially for like long range hunting when I'm guiding, it's nice to not have to just, you know, have different, um, a different range finder or binoculars, just stay on target, keep ranging. Um, you know, I think they, they, they are really awesome. Just like anything though, there's, there's drawbacks to some stuff, right? So I think range finding mm-hmm. binoculars work for 99% of the people out there. There's a few drawbacks. Like anytime you add something into an optic, uh, you kind of, you, in some ways, whether you want, like want to or not degrade the clarity a little bit. Um, I think for most people, they wouldn't notice it. Uh, for me, I do notice it. So I, I tend to kind of go like, I, in some ways, like I'd rather have that like perfect optical clarity than a little bit less optical clarity. But I would, I would definitely say that, I, I mean, I'd take range finding, like it depends on the hunt too. I actually use them, um, I'd say half the time. So some, some hunts I'll bring them and some oh, hunts nice. I'll use the other one. I think it's a lot better for rifle hunting. I use them a lot more rifle hunting. When I'm archery hunting, I kind of like that smaller range finder because it's just uh, easier for me to, it's a little bit less going on. Um, it's a little bit lighter. I can kind of be a little sneaky with it. Yeah, I can like just drop it um, if I have to. So when I'm bow hunting, I actually, I still like my handheld range finder, but when I'm like rifle hunting or guiding, I really like those uh, range finding binoculars. It's really nice. It's super convenient to have both in one thing. And I would say that, um, the, also like the, uh, computation, uh, like I've used, um, which ones were they there? There's a new, I, it's a vortex one. I just used this last year, but, uh, it's got, you use the, oh, it's the, um, AB ballistics. I don't know if you do any long range shooting, but it's really incredible to yeah, have all your drop compensation in there. You can change it for the wind. You set up your three different profiles on your phone for your bullets, and then you can you can actually go in there and tweak the velocities and a couple other things. And, I mean, just within a few minutes, I had that thing shooting. Like, I have a, a 6.5. I was using a 6.5 Creedmoor, and we were shooting out targets out to 1,100 yards, like, accurately after just adjusting the velocity and, and putting in the right data. Uh, with that, you know, like I was, it was that accurate as far as like for my drop compensation, which I usually used to use, um, ballistics apps for that. So having it in the range finder mm-hmm. and then just show you that dude, there's nothing, but be- I mean, like it's a, it's a modern Marvel. If you like to do like a little bit of long range shooting or whatever, you know? Okay. So that makes a lot of sense that it's, it's uh, more convenient for more rifle hunting and then keep them separate for the closer stuff. 
Yeah, I think, you know, and everybody's different. I've got, you know, I think it's like pretty split with the, the guys that I hunt with. Some of them hunt with the range finding binoculars for everything. Like they just like, once you, once you get used to it, you're like, wow, this is really convenient. Uh, me personally, I just, I, I kind of still like having that handheld range finder. I don't know if it's just a personal you can just thing. You see but. a little bit more clarity, not having the, the electronics in your, your high-end binoculars. Yep, exactly. And, and, you know, I think, I honestly oh, okay. think most people would never notice it. Um, and it probably isn't even like a, a problem, but I just think when it comes to bow hunting, I think I, I just prefer that handheld one. And, and who knows, man, I might just one day be like, oh, nope, I just like to keep it in the, in the binocular and, and that makes it more simple. Uh, it is nice to have that zoom. Cause like, it's definitely more clear than just looking through your little range finder. So uh, when I'm stalking in, though, I, I kind of find it convenient to have that little handheld one, um, but with a bow. When now it comes to rifle hunting or whatever, the the range finding binocular is a pretty good way to go. Well, awesome! Uh, that's been a lot of help. Thanks so much. Yep. Yeah. And thanks for talking to me. And uh, yeah, have a good day. Thank you too. Bye. Bye. Well, that concludes our Live Wild Live. I just want to thank everybody who called in. I really appreciate all the questions. It's so fun to be able to talk to you guys and just see what kind of questions are out there. It also helps me kind of gauge where the direction of the podcast is going to go for future episodes. So as always, if you didn't get a chance to call in this time, feel free to reach out at Remy Warren on Instagram. Go check out our YouTube channel, uh, at Remy Warren YouTube channel. I'm also going to be starting, you should start to see a few videos of some of the things we've been talking about on Live Wild Podcast, a few of the tips and tactics. So you'll see um, we've got on there some glassing tactics. We've got on there some that wait or go decision, kind of a, a little bit of a different illustration of it. And then I'm hopefully going to have, uh, we should have up there pretty soon, the that bear podcast story, a little bit more animated Um with some of the, so you can see, actually see some of the video and the scars and stuff like that. So I thought that would be enjoyable. Check that out. That's on our YouTube channel. I really just thank you guys so much for calling in. If you've got questions that, you know, you didn't get a chance to call in today, feel free to shoot me questions on social media. Uh, I appreciate that. Thank you guys so much for listening to the podcast. Feel free to share it, subscribe. If you can leave a comment, leave a comment wherever you listen and, and give it a rating. I really appreciate all that stuff goes a long ways, helps us out. And I hope that these tips and tactics help you out. You know, as this, Mike, I've said it before, but my goal with these live ones is to hopefully actually go live where right now you can call in and it's live if you're on the call and then we're rebroadcasting those but we're building up i'm getting used to it i i've had a few technical glitches and there's things i'm working out but eventually we'll get this thing really figured out so i really appreciate you all for for listening in messaging me all that stuff thank you guys so much until next week get out there and live wild mm -hmm.